Welcome to Not Your Ordinary Parts, a podcast where we talk about hard things associated with the human experience with the goal of increasing awareness, growth, and healing. You may hear information from professionally licensed therapists, life coaches, healers, doctors, etc. This information is not medical advice or therapy and is not meant to replace actual therapy or instructions given by a doctor or a personal therapist. I'm your host, Jalan Johnson. My guest today is Summer Forlenza. Summer is a trauma therapist and a mental health educator who specializes in treating post-traumatic stress disorder and helping survivors recover from the impact of both developmental and complex trauma. Summer has a master's in clinical psychology. She received her EMDR training in 2017 and has sought out additional advanced training and consulting on topics including the flash technique, integrating EMDR with internal family systems, working with dissociation, and eating disorder recovery. Summer has worked in school settings, community mental health clinics, and residential and partial hospitalization level of care and eating disorder treatment. Summer is passionate about what she does, and her mission is to help the world to become a more curious, compassionate, and connected place. So, Summer, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being my guest. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. I gave a brief introduction, but so that the audience can get to know you a little better, can you tell us a little bit about your story and how you got to who and where you are today? For sure. Um, So I, if you had told me when I was in college that I was going to end up being a therapist, I would have laughed too. I would not have guessed that. I was very disconnected from the mental health world, really in need of a lot of uh, support, but didn't really know that. Kind of came from a background where, you know, therapy was not respected, wasn't something that was encouraged or anything like that. Um, And then when I was a senior in college, I was 21. I got really, really sick. And I was really sick for about three years. Um, And that was an experience that left me with my own post-traumatic stress disorder um, and with a lot of questions and a lot of new awareness of... um, just a lot of more connection to like my own emotional experiences and experiences of suffering. Um, And so that made me really curious about healing and about trauma. Um, At the same time as I was starting to get better, I was working, I was teaching fifth grade in East Harlem in New York city. And it was there that I met uh, social workers for the first time. And I was like, Oh my God, I am obsessed with you. First of all. Um, and second of all, I want your job. I don't want to do my job. I don't want to be a teacher. I want to do what you're doing. Um, and so I started talking to them about how they got into their field and what education you needed. Um, and so then when we moved back to California, I started my master's in clinical psych, um, to become a therapist. So that is what led me here. Um, and then ever since I started, grad school and started working with clients, I have just found myself so constantly curious to learn more about how we can support survivors and how we can make not only therapy better for people who have survived trauma, um, but also just in general, how do we reach more people so that we can understand some basics about how to treat one another, how to communicate, um, how to treat yourself, um, just to make our world a little bit easier to be in. Nice. Thank you so much for that. Um, Mm -hmm. Well, because you Mm -hmm. are a trauma survivor who is now a trauma therapist, um, what would you say Mm -hmm. post-traumatic growth has been like for you? Yeah, I love talking about this. Um, And I also like to be careful when I talk about this because I think there's stages of trauma recovery where somebody speaking about post-traumatic growth can feel maybe invalidating, right? Because um, 
we never want to send the message that like, it's a good thing that these things happen to you, right? That's never the message I want to send when I talk about this. Um, and I think it's often a stage that we get to after we've done some of the grief and mourning and like anger stages that can happen in our own trauma recovery. But once we've gotten through those, um, and once we're sort of at a place where we feel a little bit more at peace with our story, um, then I find it really helpful to start to think about post-traumatic growth. And some of the ideas behind post-traumatic growth is that having traumatic experiences, experiences of deep suffering um, and pain and, and disconnection, can actually help us to um, deepen our empathy for other people, uh, to deepen our gratitude, our recognition of what is good in our life. I hope you don't hear my dog. Um, no <laughs> can help us to um, be feel more connected to like how alive we are when things are good. Can help us to deepen our connection to our spiritual side. Um, and I know that that was my experience after... Um, going through, you know, more acute uh, trauma when I got really sick um, was when I came out of it, when I was starting to get better. Well, first of all, I was so um, just like in the early stages of PTSD, like very hypervigilant and like just struggling a lot. But as that started to lift and I started to get better and I started to find what what helped me with that, um, I just had a much deeper ability to connect with the people who I loved and who loved me, right? It was easier for me to be vulnerable because I had already been so intensely vulnerable that um, it was just an experience that was a little easier for me to go back to. Um, and I think it helped me become more um, like aware of mortality and the time that we have here with the people we have, what actually matters to me. Um, those things shifted so much. Uh, in that experience for me, I'm a completely different person in a good way, I think, after that. Mm. Um, so while I'll never say that I'm glad that it happened, um, I am grateful for some of the ways that I've been able to evolve because of it. And I think that's something we can talk about with survivors. Gotcha. I want to kind of give um, a window into what we're talking about when we talk about survivors and mm. PTSD and things of that nature. So if you could, can you um, give a definition of what trauma means to you? Yeah. Yeah. You know, and there's a lot of different people are going to say a lot of different things. My basic right. definition that I work with is um, a traumatic experience is one where you feel overwhelmed uh, and helpless. I think if you're meeting those two conditions, um, that it can be, you know, it can be considered a traumatic experience. Um, one of the interesting things I think about trauma is that not all trauma leads to traumatization, right? Like we go through experiences where we feel overwhelmed and helpless quite regularly. Um, that's like a part of human existence and life, but it's what yeah. happens after that, that can, um, lead to whether or not you develop trauma, like trauma symptoms. Um, and that's like, you know, a lack of support, a lack of ability to talk about what happened, to process what happened. Um, all of those things can lead to that. But yeah, that's my, that's my basic working definition. It's pretty open-ended on purpose. <laughs> gotcha. All right. So what is complex PTSD and what are some common symptoms? So complex PTSD is 
uh, post-traumatic stress disorder that develops after repeated or continuous exposure to traumatic experiences. So like classic, you know, PTSD, we might think about as an example I use all the time is a car accident. You get into a car accident. It's really awful. Um, and afterwards you have trouble driving, you have trouble getting in the car and you do some trauma treatment to help you kind of reduce some of the symptoms that you're having because of that. Right. Complex PTSD would be um, if you were experiencing like, you know, my my experience was complex PTSD because it was daily experiences of overwhelm and uh, helplessness for like years. Right. So a lot of times medical trauma can fit that um, childhood trauma often fits that because a lot of times it's at the hands of caregivers. People are supposed to be taking care of you um, and it's ongoing and continuous for a very long time. Um, I think we can see that sometimes in uh, survivors of domestic violence, um, folks who have survived, folks who have like immigration stories, um, all kinds of, of things that will lead to that. When we have complex PTSD, when it's continuous, repeated, a lot of times the trauma that's complex PTSD that leads to complex PTSD is relational. So it's happening uh, between you and a person. It's not a car hits you. It's someone I'm supposed to trust is hurting me, right? Um, that's often what will meet that condition. My body that I'm supposed to trust is hurting me, right? That's another one. Um, then we'll not only see like the classic PTSD symptoms, um, we'll also see some additional ones. So we'll see a lot of trouble in relationships. So instability in relationships, difficulty connecting to people, difficulty communicating, We'll see higher instances of dissociation, which is not being present, sort of mentally checking out of uh, intense moments um, or just in general. And we'll see a lot more like emotional fluctuations and stability over time. Um, those are some of the things that we'll see that are different from classic PTSD. So you get all of the regular PTSD symptoms. So you're on edge all the time. You're having memories and thoughts that you don't want to have about the experience. Um, you're feeling very sad, like very big emotions, very sad, very angry. You'll have all of that. Plus, uh, difficulty in your relationships, difficulty staying present, um, and emotions just going up and down all the time. Mm. Okay. I think that gave a, a, a pretty clear picture of, of what it is. Now, something you mentioned was developmental mm. trauma. Mm -hmm. Is there a difference between developmental trauma and complex PTSD? A lot of times, I would say that developmental trauma leads to complex PTSD, like all developmental trauma, like not all, I guess, there's no absolutes in any of the things we're talking about. But in general, um, developmental trauma, which is trauma that happens when you're developing, when you're a kid, right? So when you're a very young child up through your teenagers, I think we don't always like think of teenagers as kids, but they're totally kids, right? So things that happen to you <laughs> when you're a teenager um, also are, are developmental are during really important developmental stages. Um, those lead to complex PTSD, but not all complex PTSD is developmental trauma, right? So you can develop complex PTSD through experiences in adulthood, um, but you can also develop it after developmental trauma while you're a kid. What are yeah. some things that someone could put their finger on and say, oh, wow, that that could have been developmental trauma for me? Like what what things happened that caused developmental trauma? Hmm. When I think about developmental trauma, I think about 
like for kids, if you have too much of bad things or not enough of good things, right? Mm -hmm. So if you have too much of like physical uh, discipline, right? It, well, any of that honestly can meet criteria, but if you have too much of that, if you have too much um, chaos and stability at home, too much bullying at school. So when you have lots of bad things happening to you, but also when you don't have enough of the good things, um, when you don't have enough emotional connection with the people around you, somebody who's able to help you understand your emotions, um, can like validate them, name them, things like that. Um, when you don't have like physical care from people in your life, cause they're not able or not willing to provide it. Um, so, you know, hygiene and food and like regular sleep schedules and just that kind of like stability and connection that you think about kids needing um, when you don't get enough of those things that can also lead to that. Um, and I think that's something that a lot of times like folks who are survivors of childhood abuse or neglect will not, I don't know. I think it's so important that we just normalize that childhood neglect um, has just as big of an impact, if not more of an impact sometimes than childhood abuse. And you don't need to be like physically harmed for you to be impacted emotionally and psychologically for a long time by what happens at young ages. I'm glad you said that because I think a lot of times and a lot of people normalize their experience because it may be what they see happening a lot in their culture or environment, you know, and they say, oh, well, my experience wasn't that bad because X, Y, and Z. But when you really, mm -hmm. you know, take yourself out of the experience and you look at it for what it is, you can see that, you know, well, maybe because I didn't get enough of this, it resulted in this and that could have been developmental trauma or, you know, any, any number of ways that we can spin that. Totally. Yeah, I think yeah. that's so common, right? Where we'll say, oh, well, my parents had it worse than me when they were kids, so mine wasn't so bad. Or I know, you know, or something like that. Um, or everybody, that's just what it's like. That's just life, right? That's just what happens. Um, and that's where I think it's so, like, helpful to contextualize and understand the way that trauma and neglect get perpetuated generationally, right? Mm -hmm. Like it, these cycles repeat and repeat um, until someone has the resources and the ability to break them. And it's a tricky, I, I think a lot of survivors, especially of like developmental childhood trauma, have this really complicated relationship with that because there's this part of you that is able to honor and recognize what, you know, your caregivers and the family that raised you grew up with and how hard it was for them. And able to understand, okay, they might've been doing the best they could with what they had. And another part of you that's like, okay, but it wasn't enough. Right. And it's angry and, and sad and holding both of those can be, that's hard work. You know, um, that's a process. It takes time to, to figure out how you hold both, you know? Indeed. I, I love the concept of duality that two things can exist at the same time. And mm. when we can wrap our minds around that, we can look at maybe that part of us that's angry and honor that part because it's angry for a reason. And at the same time, mm -hmm. understand that, okay, well, maybe my parents did the best that they could or my caregivers or whoever did the best that they could with what they had and it wasn't enough. So hence, this is why mm -hmm. I'm angry. Mm -hmm. yeah, mm hmm. Yeah. And it's like, 
I, I think sometimes people want to skip the angry part and they want to say, oh, well, they did the best they could. You know, they had it really hard too. And I get that instinct, right? Because especially if we have a loyalty to them or we feel a connection mm -hmm. to them, right? Like we don't want to talk bad about them, quote unquote, or mm -hmm. anything. But like you said, like we have this anger. It's there for a reason. It needs to be honored. It needs to have a space to be processed and acknowledged. And what you experience too needs to be validated. That's a part of the healing process is being able to actually see clearly both of those things. Maybe they were trying their best. That's not always true also, but often it is. Um, and also it wasn't enough. <laughs> exactly. So we talked about trauma. And exactly. <laughs> I love that word. Um, we talked <laughs> about trauma and developmental trauma and complex trauma. Um, this is something that survivors may not necessarily understand that they're dealing with. And so I wanted to ask, what are some common challenges for trauma survivors when it comes to conflict? Oof, I love that question. Because conflict is often where it's going to show up. So mm -hmm. um, a little bit of like uh, education on how trauma shows up is when we are in a traumatic situation when we're overwhelmed and we feel helpless, right? Our body goes into a defense mode and it says, okay, I have a couple of options that I can use to help survive this thing that is bad. Um, and that's not safe for me. I can fight the thing off, right? I can run away from the thing. Um, or I can placate the thing is another one, right? I can like make it, make, I can calm it down, whatever this threat is. I can also get really quiet and really still and hope that the, the threat stops noticing me and goes away on its own. And so all of those, each of those four options, which we can say like fight, flight, fawn, and freeze, all of those options um, are often used by people in the traumatic situation themselves, right? So either I'm like trying to fight it off, I'm trying to run away, all that. Those patterns show back up um, oftentimes in conflict when our like trauma buttons get pushed. So when our brain or body is reminded of the bad things that happened in some way, it a part of us feels like it's still happening right now. That's what makes trauma memories unique, right? They're not like the memory of like going to see the Barbie movie last week or whatever. It's like, yeah, that was fun, but it's over. Our brain is like, oh, a part of our brain really believes uh, that it might still be happening right now. And that has to do with all the stress chemicals that are flooding through our body as it happens and the lost opportunity to process that we didn't get afterwards. Um, and so you're in conflict. Let's say you're a fight person. That's where you're going to get really big, really angry. You're going to start doing things that aren't okay. Like you might be throwing stuff, uh, saying things that are really hurtful or cruel, getting physical when you get really angry, right? That's often a fight response that was helpful back in the day when you had to survive something unsafe. It's not so helpful when your partner is like, hey, those dishes didn't get done and like they really need to and I'm really overwhelmed and I need your help, right? Um Flight is equally as, it's, it's also very harmful um, in your relationships during conflict. If you're just like, this is too much, I'm leaving. Bye, bounce, I'm going away, I'm leaving. Um, that, that there's no opportunity to actually deal with the things that are happening because your body and brain feels like it's unsafe. They're like, we got to get out of here. Um, so any of those things, fight, flight, fawn. Fawning is when you say, I have no needs, I have no preferences. And often in that moment, you really feel that way. You're like, nope, all I want is for you to feel better, whatever it takes. I don't I don't actually need anything. I'm good. What do you need? I'm here for you. Um, it might make that conflict go away in the moment, but then later you're feeling resentful and you're feeling unheard and you're feeling like, why can't you know, it also be about me? 
And then freeze is when you just shut down, right? You're just blank. You know, um, we might think about like stonewalling is when somebody um, like just doesn't respond at all. It's kind of like the silent treatment, you know, people do the silent treatment. Um, that can often be a, that can sometimes be a freeze response of I'm overwhelmed. I have nothing to say. I'm just going to be really quiet and still. And then again, you don't actually get to communicate or deal with what's going on. So that's some of the ways that it can show up and that, you know, if you're finding yourself doing one or more of those things very regularly during conflict, it could be a sign that, um, you know, doing some healing work could be helpful for your relationships. Mm, thank you for that. That was amazing. The way you just <laughs> described all the different um, ways that trauma can show up. And mm -hmm. I think I think a lot of people will listen to that and go, oh, man, you know, that may be something I do. Or that's something that I noticed someone else do. And then now they can put, you know, a name to what's happening. And that's how, mm -hmm. you know, you get educated and you start the process of, of working through your, your trauma and, and starting to heal. So thank you for that explanation. I wanted to ask also, how are shame and guilt associated with trauma? Mm. I honestly think, uh, I'm curious if you agree. I honestly think that shame is the most difficult emotion that we have to deal with as humans. I think it's the one that like pushes people towards all kinds of things just to like numb out because shame is like so difficult to be with. Um, it's also like really common if you've survived abuse, right? Because especially if you were a kid, because when we're a child, our brains aren't developed, right? Um, we can't understand the world the way that we can when we're fully grown. And part of the way the child brain understands the world is it's like an egocentrism, right? Like I am, everything is about me, right? And that's like not like in a selfish way. I mean, kids are pretty selfish. This is because their brains aren't there yet. That's a it's a developmentally appropriate, right? That's how they are. Right. Um, it's not on them to change that. <laughs> but if everything's about you and the person that you love so much, most in the whole world hurts you, it must be because of me, right? There's something I'm doing that's making this happen. It's my fault. And even though, you know, you and I can sit and look at a kid and know that there's nothing a kid could do that would make it okay for a, an adult to hurt them in that way, that kid's brain can't understand that. And because the trauma happens, if the trauma happens when you're that young, that story sticks with you even into adulthood, where there's at least a part of you that holds this story that it's my fault. I was a bad kid. I was too much for them. You know, I was just really difficult. They, you know, all this stuff and creates this story that says it was my fault. Um, and when we hold that, shame says that the story of shame is like, I am bad, right? Like, I am bad. And maybe even a bit of like, I deserved the bad things that happened because I was bad or I am bad. Guilt is a totally different story. Guilt is I did something bad. That was not a cool thing for me to do. I shouldn't have done that. I don't feel good about the fact that I did that. And guilt's actually really important that we feel because we should feel bad sometimes when we do things, right? It helps us course correct. It helps us be like, that's not the kind of person I want to be, right? I don't right. want to treat people like that. I, that's not the values I have. That was, I feel guilty that I did that. That's a good, that's okay to feel. It doesn't feel good, but it's okay to feel that. Um, whereas shame collapses us, right? Like shame just curls us in and we isolate from the world. We isolate from other people. We disconnect. Um, and it's very, very painful. Um, 
And it's so common for survivors to have at least a shame part, right? I imagine you've like talked about parts here and some of the folks who listen are a little familiar with parts work. Um, we could talk about it more too, but there's at least a shame part that holds that and that says like, no, oh, I'm bad, you know, I'm just bad. I'm broken, you know, I'm not fixable. I do agree with you. And I believe that shame is one of the strongest emotions. I know at least for me anyway, because when I feel shame, it's like, I feel like my entire nervous system just collapses because mm -hmm. it's too hard to sit with or too hard to sit in. Um, and, you know, guilt, guilt is, is a strong feeling too, but shame for me is just like everything, like, you know, complete fawn. Like, yes. Just, it's it's like it's I cannot exist in that moment. Like a part of me is like, okay, we have to shut down because this emotion is too strong, and that that may be associated with childhood. Um, but I know for me, it's it's ten out of ten. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah, and you know, if you talk to folks who are struggling with substance abuse or addiction, a lot of times shame is like absolutely at the heart of that. You know. Right. Um. And. We have other parts of us who find whatever we can find to help us from feeling that um, if we don't know a way to move through it or to change it, because it is just like such an awful, isolating experience. Agreed. 10 out of 10, like you said. Mm -hmm. um, why can some experience shame associated with feeling their feelings if they grew up with emotionally immature caregivers? Yeah. Ooh, so there's this great book. Uh, it's called Adult Children of Emotionally Immature Parents. Um, and a lot of times folks will read that. It's pretty easy to read, too. It's like not super long. Um, a lot of times you start and you're like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. What? Oh, my God. Like, who wrote this book about me? You know? Um, and <laughs> shame. So when you your parents didn't have the opportunity themselves to emotionally mature for whatever reason, there's lots of reasons why that can happen, but they become adults they're not emotionally mature. So they don't have a good awareness of their own emotions. They don't know how to talk about emotions, don't know how to regulate emotions. Sometimes I'll think about like emotionally immature people will like act out their emotions instead of talking out their emotions, right? If they're frustrated, instead of being like, oh, I'm so frustrated, like things really didn't go well at work today, they'll get home and they'll slam doors and they'll huff around and they'll like act it out, right? So if you have a parent like that, who's like acting out their feelings, doesn't know how to talk about them or process them or regulate them um, or deal with them, then when you as a kid have feelings, your parent is not going to know what to do with that either. Their ultimate goal a lot of times is, could you just stop having that feeling because it's inconvenient and difficult for me? So could you, you need to shut that down. You know, mm -hmm. sometimes that's a, all right, go to your room. And when you're done crying, you can come out. Right. That's pretty common. I think a lot of people had uh, parents say stuff like that. Um, or, you know, just sort of this family culture that says, hey, if you're actually feeling things that aren't, I'm good, I'm excited, I'm happy, I would rather not hear about that. That's kind of a you thing that you need to just like fix so that we can be together, right? Yeah. So then, you know, we actually don't get the choice to avoid difficult negative emotions. That's not optional. Those are always going to be a part of our experience. And then when they do show up into adulthood, we uh, we shame ourselves. We say, oh, I'm not supposed to feel like this. I need to shut this down, right? We take on the voice of the caregiver who said that to us inside, and we say it to ourselves. Um, and then that just makes it really difficult for us when 
life happens when we get stressed at work, when someone we love dies, when we get sick, when there's a lot of fear about what's going on in the world around us. We just shame ourselves and try to shut that down rather than giving space to explore and process and feel the diversity of emotions that are a part of <laughs> being a person. I read that book and um, it's not... Yeah. It's not a um, a long read, and and I just think that for people who feel like the book is about them, it is a difficult read in the sense that you feel all the feels all the way through. It took me probably six months to get through it because I would have mm -hmm. to sit it down and come back to it because it was so heavy for me. But that book is so good and the the way it describes like just real life for people who have um caregivers who you know maybe didn't have the space to feel their feelings or who also had emotionally immature parents it just and it 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 was <laughs> it was so amazing it really was it was amazing at the same time it was it was difficult but it also gave perspective and it gave so many things that you know you may have it was like, you know, you have the edges to a puzzle and reading that book kind of put all the insides together so that you could have the complete picture of what it was that you were feeling, you know, when you were younger and even now. Mm hmm. I first of all, I really appreciate your note that like, while it's not a really long read um, or dense, it is it is like emotionally intense. Right. Yes. Um, because and it takes it. You can take your time with it. Right. You don't need to rush through it. And sometimes it's better to sit with it over time and process what you're learning and thinking about. Um, but also, I just think, you know, it, it stands out to me how valuable it is to have something, see something written down that reflects your experience and be able to say, like, I am not crazy that that yes. did. It's OK that that impacted me. That makes sense that that impacted me, even though they never hit me. They, you know, all that stuff. We can give all those caveats. But even though those those things that I'm told are the bad things never happened, I still didn't get enough of the good things or these still were bad things that happened and they still impact me. That's like step one, right? And then, then once mm -hmm. we, then we know what's going on. We're like, okay, this is what mm -hmm. I'm dealing with. Yeah. Um, I think reading that book gave me so much insight and perspective and just kind of, it was like a, a light bulb went off, you know, and now I'm no longer in the dark about certain feelings or certain um, issues that I struggle with because I have that light on. And now I can go back to that moment where maybe before I was confused or I felt a little off, but the light is on now and I see what's happening. So it, it just, it was a game changer for me. Mm. Yeah, it's it really one I is. recommend frequently um, because it's just very, very powerful for people. Indeed. Okay, so question. Um, mm. How tough can it be for people who may have been abused or neglected by their parents when their parents get older and now need to be taken care of? Yeah, like this is something I will hear from folks I work with um, who are clients, right? And as they're getting older and their parents now need care, it is. I just think a stage of life that um, is not talked about enough in like the whole recovery over the lifespan. Right. <clears throat> um, because, because especially if you're here in the States, um, you know, we don't necessarily have a really robust elder care system, right? It's, 
a lot of families, it turns into if I'm not the one who is helping this person feed themselves and get dressed and keep up with hygiene and go to the doctor, then no one is there to help them with that. And those things aren't going to happen. Um, and so a lot of people find themselves in the situation of I am now taking care of this person who hurt me really badly when I was a kid. And they might feel really angry about that. They might feel a lot of um, like resentment for it. Um, but I will sometimes hear this message, especially I think on, on the internet where there's a lot of younger folks who like aren't at that stage yet. Uh, they'll say, well, you don't have to just don't do it. I'm not going to do it. Um, but the reality is that it's, it's really, that's not an actually easy call to make. Right. Um, or sometimes even like an option. It doesn't even seem like a real option. And so, you know, a lot of people, they'll find themselves at this life stage where, um, you know, they're taking care of someone who didn't really take care of them. And it is, you know, isolating and confusing and upsetting and, and it's just not something that I hear talked about that much, but that I've heard a number of the people I work with talk about their experience of that. Um, and yeah, when I've talked about it a little bit on online, you know, I get a variety of responses. Some of the people, some people being like, you know, nobody has to take care of anybody. You don't have to take care of them. And others being like, thank you so much for validating this because it's really, really hard. And I feel like people aren't talking about it. It's a tough I think stage. That, yeah, it is for sure. And I think that a lot of people who may have experienced neglect or abuse may not want to, but do it anyway. And maybe other mm -hmm. family members or, you know, the community will say, oh, well, you should be doing it. And OK, mm -hmm. but also it doesn't negate the fact that it may be difficult because of what you had to go through dealing with them on the other side when they were supposed to take care of you. And now you have to take care of them and you're doing it. And you may not feel good about it or you may just need to hear someone say, you're doing a really amazing thing because I'm sure it's difficult to do this because of your experience. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah. Just having it like being validated and seen. I think a lot of people want to just be seen in the struggle of what it is that's happening. And again, just because of the world that, you know, at least the here in the U S like we just don't have a lot of social supports for that um, age, that stage of life. And there can be a lot of pressure. Um, I always do encourage folks to be thoughtful, you know, if it's possible to hold boundaries around like someone moving in with you, if you have the option for them to not move in with you, like if you can, you know, it's nice having a safe place to retreat to afterwards is so helpful. Um, but it's just a really tough thing that that survivors experience and brings up so many, you know, sometimes survivors, their their parents are dealing with memory care issues right so there's alzheimer's there's dementia and they don't even remember you know mm -hmm. what it was that happened or the their adult child and that's very emotionally complicated and difficult it's it's fascinating it can be experienced in so many different ways um but i just want people to talk about it you know yeah the hard conversations are the ones that that do us the most good um because they can mm -hmm. be emotionally complicated, like you said. I'm stealing that from you, too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I think we got to get comfortable being there because I don't know that we get out that much of that space. <laughs> it's true. Okay. All right. So big question for you. What is generational trauma okay. and how may it show up in our lives? 
Ah, so we touched on this a moment ago, right? Um, mm -hmm. Generational trauma is sometimes people will say um, like family curses and stuff like that, right? It's when you'll see um, grandpa was an alcoholic, dad's an alcoholic, kid, you know, son is an alcoholic, right? It just gets passed on down. Um, we might see it uh, in different kinds of abuse that happens at home, physical abuse, um, other kinds of abuse, like happens in one generation, happens in the next, happens in the next. Um, and a lot of times this happens because like people are caregiving or are either parenting the way they were parented and they're like, all right, I turned out fine. <laughs> a lot of times that's not actually as true as it feels like it is, but you know, people will say that I turned out fine. So it's fine. Um, so they're repeating the kind of parenting they received. Uh, they also might be repeating the kind of emotional regulation skills that were modeled for them. Right. So when I feel angry, I punch walls, right. That's how I get the anger out and I relax my body and <laughs> myself. Um, when I get sad, I drink a lot because then it just helps me go to sleep and, and I don't have to think about it. Um, when I get uh, worried, I pace around and I talk about it a lot and I ruminate and I obsess, right? And, and if we saw that modeled for us, we'll keep doing that. Um, if we're not consciously checking it, it'll unconsciously become repeated. Um, and it'll just get passed down down to generation to generation. And it's very common with, you know, things like substance abuse, things like, um, like I said, you know, abuse of many kinds, neglect. Um, and it kind of comes down to, is there a person in the family line who has um, the the ability to notice, hey, this isn't actually okay that this is happening and it should change? Um, and then has the resources to support them in actually creating that change because it's not as easy as just recognizing it. It's very hard work. Um, so, you know, has access to education, access to support, access to finances, things that are can be really, really helpful in breaking some of those cycles. Um, and I like to, to recognize that resources and support are essential in breaking cycles um, because it helps me anyway to build empathy for people who came before me who weren't able to do it. Um, because they didn't have the opportunity. Thank you for that. Um, now, mm -hmm. something that you use as a tool to heal and help your clients with their trauma and life experiences is EMDR therapy. Um, so I wanted to ask you, what is EMDR and how do you use it? Yeah. EMDR stands for Eye Movement Desensitization and Reprocessing. Here's my little spiel. <laughs> eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. Um, and basically it is a form of therapy that utilizes mindfulness to help us process traumatic memories. That's one of the ways I understand it. Um, so basically uh, when we do EMDR, um, I'll help somebody identify a traumatic memory. Um, and remember we talked about like traumatic memories are different from uh, non-trauma memories because they get stored in the brain as this is still happening right now. So I have the reactions in the present as if the past is the present. Um, so we'll find a memory of uh, one of those memories and we got all techniques to do that. Sometimes people come in and they know right away, no, it's this, this is the thing and we need to do this. Um, and then I, we basically ask a specific set of questions in a specific order that helps to light up different parts of the brain that have to do with that memory, um, the thoughts connected to the memory, the body sensations that show up when we think about it, um, the emotions that are connected. 
And um, we use a process that's called bilateral stimulation, which is just the fancy word for stimulating left side of the body, right side of the body, back and forth. We can do it with eye movements. It's just how it was started, but there's lots of different forms of bilateral stimulation that are used now and are very effective. Um, and we'll use some bilateral stimulation in sets of about 60 seconds. So 60 seconds of stimulation, and then we'll take a little pause. We'll check in on what you're experiencing, and then we'll repeat. Um, and what is, it's, it's funny, because whenever I introduce it to folks who don't know about EMDR, I'm like, this is going to sound really weird, okay? I want, <laughs> like, I want you to give it a try. It's going to sound weird. Um, and it is kind of weird. But what happens is that we basically create um, an environment where your calm, grounded, present, and adult brain is able to look at the bad thing that happened from this place of being calm and grounded and grown and able to process through the events in a way that you couldn't at the time. And so by the conclusion of EMDR, the idea, the goal is that that memory will be the same as other memories, where it's a story about something that happened in the past. We can recognize the way it impacts us, the way it shaped us, but it's not as vivid or alive um, as it was before we did the process. Does that make sense when I describe it that way? Are you familiar with EMDR? I don't know your familiarity, but um, I, am, I, am. I feel like I'm still learning how to describe it. <laughs> no, if, if I, even if I wasn't familiar, it, it made sense and it, it broke down how it works to, you know, access parts of the brain and then kind of desensitize the memory um, with the the emotions and, and offset the triggers. Yeah, exactly. That's the goal, right? Is that um, we'll use the car accident example. Let's say you got hit by a red car. Every time you see a red car, your heart starts pumping, your your body gets really scared. You want to run away. After EMDR, you can see a red car and be like, well, that kind of looks like the car that hit me. That was, that was so messed up that that happened. But <laughs> you don't have the whole reaction anymore in your body. Right. Um, I think the way trauma affects the brain is not something a lot of people talk about um and it was something that one of your posts that i love so much you talked about how shame can affect someone just from having eye contact with other people and that kind of blew my mind because i remember struggling with making eye contact with people having conversations or just in general like i would you know i would always look away and i never understood why and then it was because the shame registered in my brain that if I was to make eye contact, that I would feel a certain way. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. And it, you know, eye contact is totally a trigger, right? Mm. It can absolutely be a trigger. And we don't always, we're not always able to like name and recognize that. Um, but it's a really vulnerable thing actually. And if vulnerability is not safe, then eye contact doesn't feel safe. And then, you know, sometimes we're in situations where somebody's like forcing it or like asking for it. And it's so uncomfortable. <laughs> Same as like, you know, if you go to um, <laughs> like a yoga class or like a, you know, any kind of, a lot of times exercise classes at the end, they'll have you close your eyes and do some breathing to like cool down or whatever. And I was always one of those people who could not close her eyes. I was <laughs> not going to do that. <laughs> you know? It's interesting. So I wanted to ask, what are some effective self-care strategies that can be implemented for trauma survivors? Hmm. 
Great question. I think the foundation of recovery is finding some safety. Um, and we don't live in a safe world, right? Like that's not like a given, but we can create pockets of safety or places where we feel safe enough. Um, and that is like one of the first things I want to do with folks when we're trying to take care of ourselves after a traumatic experience. Um, a lot of times that's at your home. Um, you know, if you live with other people who are safe for you, um, you can have a safe place in your home. Um, sometimes you don't have that. So it might be something like a local library or your car or um, a park, um, like a place where you can go and you can feel safe enough there. But you want to find someplace safe enough. Um, and then once you are in that place, um, I want to think about like self-soothing and stuff that's going to help our brain and body um, feel more calm and more present in the safety that's around us. Uh, so there's all kinds of stuff we can do for this. One of the things I love uh, is um, to use like pressure. So weighted blankets that calm anxiety are so great for survivors. I love always recommending weighted blankets to folks. Uh, bring it to the place where you feel safe, put it on your body or just put it on your chest. Um, the pressure helps your nervous system to like calm down and go out of that fight or flight response and into the opposite, which is rest and digest, which is like, okay, I can rest. I'm calm. Um, cold temperatures are also great for this. So um, my like favorite thing that I own is I have this weighted ice pack and it's like full of a, uh, I don't know, sand or something. I don't really know what's in there, um, but you can keep it in the freezer and it's heavy and you can put it on your chest and it's like the cold and the, the pressure at the same time is fantastic. Um, you can also hold something cold, put an ice pack um, on the forehead or the chest or the neck, um, something like that. Uh, drink something really cold, like have something cold water. Whenever I do EMDR sessions with folks, um, one of the things I have to have with them is something cold to drink because we use that at the end a lot. Um, we just want to do things that help the body like feel calmer. So that's going to be, there's some things that I like to recommend everyone to try, but a lot of times it's about knowing yourself. Okay. Is there a certain scent that when I put this candle on or I smell this perfume or this lotion, it reminds me of things that we're safe and calm and good. Uh, do I have a pet around me? My dog's on the floor here. Like who makes me feel safer and calmer? Um, do, you know, do I have locks on my doors? That's another thing, right? Like making sure you feel secure. Like that's really important for survivors sometimes is to feel a sense of security in your place. Um, but we just want to give cues for safety. So things that your brain, it's kind of like the opposite of triggers, things your brain can see that reminds you I'm like safe here and now. Um, yeah, movement is also something like exercise is something I really recommend because a lot of survivors are just like flooded with adrenaline and cortisol all the time. Cause we're like hypervigilant mm. and a door slams two houses away and we jump, you know? Um, and so we got to put those hormones to use those chemicals to use. So, um, a lot of times an exercise routine, if it's accessible to you is so helpful, um, for just calming the body down. And that can be anything you like, <laughs> but just like using those hormones, using those stress chemicals is very helpful too. Oh, perfect. Thanks for that. Um, yeah. okay. So last question and big one. Okay. okay. If you could, <laughs> if you could use your platform <laughs> to encourage anyone who may be struggling with their big feelings or emotions or on the fence about talking to someone about therapy, maybe a therapist or a coach, um, what would you say? 
I would say that you can start if you're nervous or hesitant to reach out to someone to support you, but at the same time you're getting feedback or you're recognizing that it's probably important and you want to do it, right? You need to do it. Sometimes I'm like, I want to have done it. I want it to be done and I did it, right? <laughs> um, then you can start, like where your therapy can start is with that. I don't think I want to do this. I'm really nervous. I'm not sure that I want to do this. Um, you don't have to start with, these are all the bad things that have ever happened to me. That does not have to be day one. Um, you can start with, this is how I'm feeling about being here. Uh, I'm not so sure that I want to be here. By the same time, this is what I want to get out of it. Um, and you know, a good mental health professional is going to support you starting there. And that's where you'll start. And you can just stay there as long as you want. Um, when it comes to trauma therapy, I really think it's so important for survivors to set the pace. So I'll tell my folks, you know, like we're in a car, I have a map, I'm in the passenger seat, but you have your feet on the gas and the brake and you get to decide when we go, when we stop and where we go, right? I'm just here to support and guide. Um, but you can find somebody who has that a lot, you know, if they're a trained trauma professional, they should have that perspective of like, you get to choose and you get to set the pace and you can just start wherever you're at um, and do great work. And it doesn't have to, you don't have to jump headfirst into all the vulnerability that you don't want to do yet, because that's actually probably not even helpful to start with somewhere that you're overwhelmed or uncomfortable. Start where you are. Wow. I've never heard someone starting with saying, I don't want to do this, but I guess that's an amazing starting point because it's honest, number one, and it will allow whoever it is that you're you're talking to to know where to begin and you know maybe what pace you need to go at. So, thank you for that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I would love if someone came to me and that's what they said first. I'd be like, perfect, let's explore that. Let's start there, you know. And again, it's honest and just I think transparency and honesty are the best things you can bring to a mental health professional because then we can support you in the way you need, you know? And that's what we want to do. Like all, pretty much all of us are bleeding hearts who just want to make the world better. and want you to feel better. So. <laughs> <laughs> Great. All right. Well, Summer, thank you so much for this. Um, I'm really, really grateful to have had the opportunity to do this with you. Um, thank you for your time, for agreeing to do this with me and for what you do, for the work that you've done to be able to give back and make mental health so relatable and, you know, the science behind the brain and things of like that. Really grateful. Thank you so much. This was so great to talk with you and get to talk about things I'm excited about and care about. So thank you for making the space for me. If people want to find you online or on social media, where can they find you? You can search my name. I'm at summer for Lenza on all the platforms, basically most active on Instagram. So if you want to come hang out with me there, you can I have a website, um, which you can also check out if you're in California and you want to look into doing some therapy with me. I sometimes have some openings. Um, so you can check that out. Um, but yeah, just look up my, just Google my name and I'll show up. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Great. Well, again, summer, I want to say thank you for this. Thank you for the time that you've given me, the time that you've put into your practice and your craft. Thank you for who you are, for what you do, and for the way you do it. Thank you. It was great talking to you.